Ephesians 1, 20-23 Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Good morning. It is a blessing to be together on this chilly morning. Well, we are thankful for the safe travels that everyone has had to be able to assemble together. It is important to come together to worship our God, and you are certainly an encouragement to, to me, and I hope to everyone as well, and I hope that we are able to study the Word of God together this morning, and that we might all be built up in the most holy faith, that we might be able to have a better understanding of God's will and God's purpose in our life for us in how we ought to live and serve Him day to day. A couple of months ago, it was announced on the first Sunday of every month, I'm going to try, on the first Sunday morning of every month, I'm going to try to preach something that would be more on the elementary side of things that would be something that would be of extreme importance and understanding and understanding the, the foundation of Christianity. And I'm going to try to continue to do that throughout this year. And one of the things that I believe is fundamental to our understanding is our concept of what the Church of Christ really is. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians is extremely helpful in understanding some of the characteristics of the Church of Christ and what the Church of Christ is all about. And so this morning, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it. We're not going to really venture too much out of the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, turn there to the book of Ephesians. If you're on a tablet or a screen, then that should be a little easier for you. But Ephesians is where we're going to be studying this morning. Think about what the plan is for the Church of Christ and the things that we learn that are presented to us here in the book of Ephesians about the church. Because when we study about the church that Jesus built, there are a various number of topics that we could talk about that are vital that we need to understand. We need to be able to talk about and understand the nature of the church. We need to talk about the work of the church. We need to talk about organization of the church. We have to talk about several different aspects of the church. And I would submit to you this morning that error in any of those characteristics or any of those categories or concepts about the church can and eventually will lead to error that is practiced in the church. And that's why we can never stray too far away from being able to talk about these things. We need to talk about what the church is. We need to talk about what, why it exists and how it came into existence and the supreme importance of it. Some churches, because of a misunderstanding of the organization of the church, have appealed to denominationalism. Or in, in questions about the institutional controversy in which can... Churches be involved in supporting 
human institutions to accomplish a God-approved work. Is that acceptable or not? Those are important questions that have to be answered and that we need to have a foundational understanding of what the church is. Other people, they turn to, they make churches into something like a, a Red Cross organization where they are trying to promote certain things that might be good and uh, for society at large, but is that the purpose and the nature of the church in which Christ came to build? What is the church of Christ? That's a question that we've probably all pondered at some point. We've all had to answer. Is the church of Christ a denomination? Is it a name or a title that is just a tradition of men? Is the church of Christ something that we should be a part of? Or is it something that we can choose to be a part of, but we could also choose to be part of another church? Is just any church as good as another the church of Christ, I submit, is the group of people as the church is so defined. It is the people that belong to Christ. It's not a nominational title. It's a descriptive phrase that shows Christ as the head and the owner of the church. And so this morning, I hope that you will open up your Bibles, turn with me, as we have already read in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 20, as he's talking about the supreme greatness of the blessings that we have in Christ, Paul is. He says that those blessings have been brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That Christ has been exalted to a great and high position. That He is ruling on the throne and that He is far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He has put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church. And as we learn in verse 23, that church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That Christ has been exalted to this very high and noble position in which He rules and He reigns over all other positions of power. That Christ reigns supreme. He is our King. And we, in the church of Christ, we are recognizing Christ in that position. We recognize Him as our Lord in which we confess that we believe Him to be our Lord and our King. And so any discussion about the church, it has to be rooted and grounded in this understanding of who Christ is, that He is the King, that He is the one who rules, and that He has power. And so if we're going to talk about characteristics of the church of Christ, then it begins with understanding Christ. And that the church of Christ is headquartered in heaven because that is where Christ is. As you can see there in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 22 and 23, that has, He has been seated at the right hand of God, that He is seated in the heavenly places, that He is ruling and all things have been put under Him, that He is the one who has all authority. He is reigning in heaven. 
Later on in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and Paul's instructions to masters and, and the master and slave owner relationship that was under the first century practice. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, he is talking about how masters are to be well behaved and they are to treat their slaves fairly. He says in verse 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. Our king, our master, is in heaven. The headquarters of the church of Christ it resides in heaven because that is where the head is. The headquarters of any group or organization is where the head is, where decisions are made, where the rules, the laws, and the governing is completed and fulfilled. Jesus is the enthroned King who is in heaven. He is our Master who is in heaven. He is the one that we are to submit to in everything. Earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 24, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 24, Notice what Paul admonishes to the church. He says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. That the church is subject to Christ who is its head. He is the head in which we recognize and we are obedient to. And we submit to Him and to His laws, to His will, to His rule. We are willing to follow what He says. The head and the headquarters of the New Testament church is found in heaven. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, I mentioned that I would not venture too far off. This is one of the passages that we will look at and consider this morning. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 30, as Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he was preaching about Christ and how He had been raised from the dead. How He had been exalted to the right hand of God. He said in verse 30, as he was quoting from David, who was writing as a prophet, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He's talking about the kingship and the lordship of Jesus, how he is, he is on the throne of David. And he says in verse 20, 34, For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. That Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. He was ascended into heaven and He is exalted to be our King. He resides in heaven and that is where we turn to. We turn to follow our head and our Master and our King. And that indicates to us that this is not an earthly, physical kingdom that we're searching for, but that it is a spiritual kingdom. That Jesus is not reigning here on the earth. He is reigning in heaven and He serves as our King today. And that has other implications for us. 
that we're not to be trying to <clears throat> attract people to the gospel through social and entertainment and, and recreational kinds of activities. Because we're not in the business of trying to satisfy the flesh. We are in the business of trying to be obedient to our King in serving Him. You're in a spiritual mission in the church, seeking to preach the gospel and save people's souls. The church does not have an earthly headquarters with its head on earth. The Catholic's head is the Pope in Vatican City. The Methodist church government, they model their governing after the U.S. government with three different branches. The Southern Baptist Convention determines the practice of local Southern Baptist churches and is located in Nashville, Tennessee. The Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower is in Brooklyn, New York. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in Salt Lake City. The head of all those in their headquarters is all these different places. That ought to indicate something to us that it's not that they are something more than what the Bible presents about the church of Christ. If a church does not have its head and headquarters in heaven, then it is not the church of Christ because Christ is our head. Christ is in heaven. But secondly, I want you to think about another characteristic about the church of Christ and how it was planned by God. How the church did not come into existence by accident. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, notice with me in Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 10, as Paul is writing about this great mystery that has been made known and has been revealed to him and how he is writing it down. He talks about all this and then he comes to verse 10 and he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the church did not happen by accident. It came into existence by God's eternal purposes, by God's eternal plan, that this was not just some kind of substitute, but that this is exactly what God intended. The church is the result of God's plan of redemption. Earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul writes about how we were saved by grace through faith. Not of our works that we could boast, but that we are saved by grace. And that we have been called into one body that Christ has built. That doesn't sound like an accident. That sounds like something that took great intention and great purpose and great planning. And yet, sadly, there are whole systems of doctrine that would tell you and submit that the church is just sort of a temporary stopgap. 
that premillennialism, it presupposes that Christ actually, when He came to this earth the first time, that He came to establish His kingdom here on earth. And yet, the Romans were able to kill Him. And so, in between, now we are in the church age, what they would call this. That we are in the church age. And that the kingdom was not really established when Christ came the first time. And so we're still waiting when Christ returns at the second time where Christ is going to finally establish that earthly, physical, nationalistic kingdom. And that the church is just sort of this temporary thing to get us from Christ's first coming to the second coming when Christ is finally going to have that thousand year reign on the earth. You think about that. The implications of a doctrine like that. That Jesus was a failure. God was a failure. And that man was able to thwart God's plan. And yet what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 11 contradicts the whole system. That this was all in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not that He might carry it out or that He will carry it out in the future, but that He has accomplished it. He has established the church which is the kingdom that Christ is ruling and reigning over. And if we do not appreciate the church as God planned it, then we do not appreciate the church which belongs to Jesus Christ. If we think we can have Christ but not have His church, then we don't respect and love God's eternal plan. The church of Christ was planned by God, and it was not an accident. It wasn't a temporary stopgap. It was the fulfillment of what Christ came to do. A third characteristic that we see about the church of Christ is that it is loved by Christ. If in chapter 5, you have the beautiful description of Christ's relationship with the church. And really, if you continue in... Backing up to verse 23, he compares this to the husband and wife relationship. He says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. What Paul is certainly focusing in on and zooming in on here is Christ's 
love and dedication to the church. That Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for her. And that kind of love is not just a superficial kind of love. It is a love that sacrifices. It's a sacrificial love. It's a dedicated love that says, I'm going to do whatever I need to serve you rather than myself. It is pure and unselfish action. That's what we learn about Christ. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul is... He was talking to the elders at Ephesus. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. How much did Christ love the church? He loved it so much that He gave His life for it. There's probably very few possessions that you own where you would be willing to give your life for it. But your relationships, probably the spouse or your children or your grandchildren, those you might be willing to give your life for. Maybe. Christ, He gave His life to purchase the church. Our Savior loved the church. And He demonstrates His love by that sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, He has perfected the church and providing for it. Notice the language in Ephesians 5 and in verse 27 that... He or verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That His sacrifice was in order that we might be perfected and completed and sanctified and made holy. We are God's chosen people. The church is Christ's chosen people. And the church has a head who would do whatever it takes, even the giving up of His life, in order that we might benefit. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, our Lord. Why would we want to substitute our head for any other person? Why would we want to ever take a vote for, well, you can be our head or, or something of that nature, and you can be the head of this church or this denomination. Christ is far better because He loved the church through His sacrificial love and dedication and His death. And you think about people who are willing to turn their back on the church and leave the church. When you leave the church, you 
are removing yourself from Christ's sacrifice. You're removing yourself from the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Can we really expect to be part of the saved, the purified, perfected, holy people of God if we refuse to be part of the Lord's body, His church? People are gravely mistaken when they think they can have Christ without being part of the church. And yet, what we hear from so many people is that we need to preach more about Christ and we need to preach less about the church. You can't take the two apart. You can't separate them. Because Christ loved the church. And if Christ loved the church, then we need to love the church. We need to be dedicated in serving Him within the church. A fourth characteristic that is presented in the book of Ephesians about the church of Christ is that it is one in Christ. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 22, it says, And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He goes on in chapter 4 and in verse 4, there is one body speaking about the church. And in chapter 5 and in verse 23, as he's talking about the husband-wife relationship and comparing it to Christ's relationship with the church, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. What we learn about this idea that the church is one, I think is multifaceted actually. That it is one in a singular way, but it's also one in a unified way. That the church is a unified body. It brings differing people together. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verses 11 through 22, it's a lengthy section here. But Paul is talking to Gentiles and how they were alienated from the covenant. They were not part of Israel. They were not part of the Jewish people. And in the first century, especially in the church, there were a lot of tensions between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul goes through in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That the two, Jew and Gentile, they have been brought together into one unified body, one purpose, one mind, one mission, because of a same belief and a common confession. 
that they believe in Jesus as the Christ. Their King that they are giving allegiance to. The church unifies people from various backgrounds and various opinions to be one in Christ. Christ has that power and capability. And so the church is a unified body. I think that's one sense in how it is one in Christ. But it is also a singular body. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, when Paul says, There is one body, I believe he is speaking about the singular nature of that oneness. You think about the analogies of that Paul uses in Ephesians regarding the church and Christ. Christ is the head of the body. Christ is not the head of multiple bodies. That's absurd, isn't it? He is the head of one body. Christ is the husband of one wife, not multiple wives. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, as he talks about Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And if you're building a, a building or a temple or some kind of, uh, of structure, how many foundations do you have? You have one foundation. Not many foundations. The church is a singular body. And there is one church. There is only one church for which Christ died. There is only one church that God planned. There is only one church for which we are to be a member of. And we should never be ashamed to proclaim there is only one church. We want to be sure that we are part of that church. Though, And so the church being one in Christ, it's a singular body. And we need to be only concerned with finding that church that's presented in the New Testament, and that's what we want to replicate. That's the church I want to be a part of. That's the church I know you want to be a part of as well. But then I think there's a third facet of oneness here that is under consideration. And that is that the church is an indivisible body. That the church is indivisible. That it cannot be divided and remain the true church that Christ gave His life for. that if we are going to divide the church, then it ceases to be the church for which Jesus went to the cross and shed His blood. You think about the word denomination. And it was primarily used in a financial way. That Merriam-Webster defines denomination in the financial component a value or size of a series of values or sizes. This morning on, on the way to the church building, I needed to break a $5 bill because I wanted to get a couple of ones so the, the boys could put it in the collection plate at the past. Learned last week not to forget that because Zeke started crying when he did not get to put a dollar bill in the collection plate. So that was fun. 
So I, I learned from that mistake, but I needed to break that $5 bill. I needed to go to the store and break that $5 bill. A $5 bill is just one of many kinds of other dollar bills. There are $1 bills, there are $5 bills, there are $20 bills, there are $50 or $100 bills. And you know what? I would have been very annoyed if I had brought in a $5 bill and asked if I could break that $5 bill and they only gave me two ones back. I would have been very annoyed, right? Because, guess what? <laughs> two $1 bills do not equate to the $5 bill that I needed to have. It's not the same. A $5 bill is not equivalent to a $1 bill because not all denominations are of the same value. Denominations of churches implies that not all churches are of the same kind and value. Christ did not die to make different kinds of churches. He died to build His church, the singular, indivisible, and undivided church. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18, when Jesus said to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Singular. Not churches. Not denominations. I will build my church. It is sad when we see denominations as the norm. Because implicit may not be explicit and they, not everyone may understand this until they start thinking about it a little bit harder. But whenever we, when people claim to be part of a denomination rather than being part of the Lord's church or the church of Christ, and they are just, it's like if I got two ones when I needed that $5 bill broken up. They are distorting and twisting what God's plan really was. God did not plan for people to say, well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Mormon, or a Lutheran. That was not in God's plan. God planned for you to be able to say, I am a Christian, and not have to answer the follow-up question, what kind of Christian are you? I hope it's a good one, but you know how people would be. Oh, what denomination do you go to? God planned for the people, Christians, to be of Christ and in Christ, being in the church. Of Christ. And then finally, one final blessing for us, or consideration for us, is bring in the blessing that we have in Christ. The book of Ephesians opens with this grand and wonderful statement in verse 3 of chapter 1 Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That the church of Christ are blessed people who are in Christ. And you go throughout that text in Ephesians chapter 1, and you see that those who are blessed are in Christ. In verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In verse uh, 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. We have blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. We've been chosen. That's not accidental. That God has chosen the church. We have been redeemed. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. We have received the forgiveness of our sins. In verse 9, he talks about how the mystery of His will has been made known. That you can know God's will and God's plan. And these blessings give us our identity as the people of God. That we are the blessed in Christ. What becomes very apparent is that phrase, in Christ. That we have to be in Christ if we are going to receive such blessing. In the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, and in verse 27, Paul tells us how we are in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When we are immersed in water, we are in Christ. We receive these blessings and the forgiveness of our sins. Well, that's why Paul uses that phrase in chapter 5 and verse 26, talking about the church and Christ's relationship with her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. With the washing of water. When we are immersed in water, our sins are forgiven. We are added to the church. We are added to the body of Christ. And we come to enjoy the blessings of Christ. The forgiveness of our sins. He redeems us when we become His people. And so when you think about these characteristics, about the headquarters in heaven, the plan of God, the love of Christ, being one in Christ and being blessed in Christ, these are characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. This morning, I would encourage you to come to know more about the church of Christ. Because when you come to know about the church, you're coming to know Christ. And if you want to enjoy the blessings that are found in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, becoming a member of the church of Christ that was planned and predestined 
according to the love and wisdom of God. This morning, you can become a child of God. You can become a part of the church of Christ if you will come to the waters of baptism to be washed in water. Have the gospel of Jesus Christ save you. It is the power of God salvation. And God wants you to come to Him. But what you must do is come in faith. You must believe in Jesus as our King and follow Him. Be willing to confess faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be willing to go to the waters to be baptized, to have your sins washed away. You need to come to Christ. You can become a child of God. You can be added to the Lord's church. Maybe it is that you haven't done that. We're prepared to help you this morning. Perhaps it is that you have decided to follow Jesus though, but you've not been living faithfully. You've not been living that holy life that Christ died to give you. Will you come back to Him? Turning from sin, repenting from that which you've done which is wrong, coming and confessing those things that you've done, we will pray with you and pray for you and encourage you along your journey. Whatever way we can help you this morning, would you let it be known as we stand and as we sing?